This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. We're going to be talking to Sheer Sharma of Rockefeller today. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products and the views our guests of their own and not those of Wizard Affiliates. Uh, Rushir is a return guest to Behind the Markets. Uh, he's got a new job from when we talked with him before. Rushir, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Tell us, uh, so you previously were at Morgan Stanley, but have recently taken a position at Rockefeller. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what uh, excited you to join Rockefeller, what you're going to be working on with, with them? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the person who runs Rockefeller uh, Capital Management is Greg Fleming. Uh, he and I go back a very long way. He was at Morgan Stanley. He was running Morgan Stanley Investment Management uh, for a number of years. And that's where he and I were uh, involved together uh, because I've been um, an investor all my career and was at Morgan Stanley Investment Management for practically all my investment career uh, of 25 years or so. So he and I decided that uh, we should collaborate together. And uh, so it's a twofold collaboration. At one level, um, uh, I'm going to be like the global brand ambassador, which is that uh, I will write and speak and, uh, and uh, do so-called thought leadership under their brand name uh, as chairman of Rockefeller International. Uh, and the other part um, of our... Uh, offer association is that I'm launching my own investment firm called Breakout Capital. And uh, uh, Rockefeller will be supporting it. It will be in strategic partnership with Rockefeller uh, Capital Management. And uh, my plan is to always be an investor and to use that as a vehicle for launching new uh, investment products, particularly oriented towards emerging markets, where I see a lot of opportunity uh, over the coming decade. Yeah, so Breakout Capital coming off of your book, Breakout Nations, is good uh, good brand synergies there, I I presume. Uh, maybe sort of give your thesis, I mean, emerging markets have been a very tough place to invest, so I'm, I'm glad we've got you for the, the show to talk high level, how the current dynamics set up from your long-term expectations, the trend towards international investing, maybe sort of give us your, your some of your high-level macro thesis and sort of the long-term case that we can go into what's going on in the markets today. Right. So if you look at every decade over the last, uh, you know, like 100 years or so, what you find is that every decade is defined by uh, a particular theme uh, that does very well in that decade, right? So let's say if you go back to the 1970s, uh, it was all about commodities and natural resources. The decade before that in the 1960s was all about uh, the go-go stocks, right? The new, you know, like the new economy stocks of that era, uh, which, did really, which did really well in that uh, period, the growth stocks. The 1980s was all about Japan. Uh, it ended with Japan being 45% of the global market capitalization in 1989, even though its economic size growing was still only 16%. Uh, then you had the 1990s, which was all about the tech, the birth of the NASDAQ, uh, which culminated in the big uh, bull market uh, of technology and growth stocks again in, uh, in 2000. The 2000s, again, in turn, was all about BRICS, the rise of all these emerging markets, uh, commodity-based emerging markets. That's what did really well in the 2000s. And the last decade has been all about America. Uh, It's uh, back to America. The American stock market uh, has done uh, exceedingly well, especially compared to the rest of the world. Uh, It's uh, trading at close to 100-year highs versus the rest of the world uh, in uh, both valuation terms and also in price terms. Uh, uh, so that's quite remarkable. And my uh, sort of analysis shows that at the turn of every decade, you typically get a change in the monetary cycle uh, somewhere around that time. 
And that also coincides with a regime shift that what's worked very well in one decade, you get a lot of excesses built up on, on that trend and the trend then reverses in the subsequent decade. So that's really my thesis that for this coming decade, um, I think people are too overexposed to America. Uh, the American stock market now is over 60% of the global stock market cap, even though its economic size is about 25-26%. And I think that it's time for international investing to return. And so this decade uh, will be its own. Each decade is distinct. Uh, but I think that emerging markets in particular could do quite well. And this is exactly the opposite of what I was saying on your show a decade ago, uh, when you first interviewed me on the back of my first book, uh, Breakout Nations. The thesis of that book was that uh, these BRICs were way overhyped and the true breakout nation of the decade was going to be America. Uh, that was the, the book's central thesis in 2012. Um, and uh, I wish I had invested more accordingly. Uh, it's one thing to write and speak about it, the other thing to put your money where your mouth is. Uh, so I wish I'd done more of that, but it uh, ended up being a fantastic decade for emerging markets. Uh, sorry, for the U.S., and a terrible decade for emerging markets. So I think that now what I expect is for uh, the trend to flip and uh, for this decade to be much better for emerging markets. Well, just at the end of February, uh, you wrote a piece in the Financial Times very much tied to this conversation was the best bet for the 2020s is short tech, long commodities. Um, so uh, it was a very interesting piece. Um, and, and I want to get into what we think. There's a lot of things driving commodity prices both this year and then I, when, I, if, when we talk about the 2020s, we're not talking about just this year. We're talking about a much longer cycle. Um, so let's let's go into that a little bit, and then we're going to. I want to bring it back to where in emerging markets is very much related. But let's 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 continue around this thesis of why short tech versus long commodities. So I think that what we see currently is that the world is overinvested in technology and really underinvested in commodities. Uh, that for a lot of the commodity plays um, have done quite poorly over the last decade or so. The share of commodities, if you look at in the S and P five hundred is at the lowest level that it's been, I think, in recorded history. Uh, and, you know, there was this feeling, in fact, until a year or two ago, that the dirtiest thing to touch was commodities. So we saw a massive cutback in new investment in the commodity sector. There was also green politics at play because uh, they were seen as mostly polluting industries. So nobody wanted to touch them. There were lots of incentives against investing in commodities. So... That's what happened. So massive cutback in new commodity investments over the last uh, five or six years. The issue is that the demand never really fell off. The demand is still there for commodities. And in fact, the irony is that to get to a more greener planet, which is what we all want, you need more commodities to build that infrastructure, uh, whether it's lithium for batteries, it's copper for so many of the other uh, usages that you have, including for electrical vehicles. So some of these commodities you need to build this new green infrastructure. What we're looking to do is to replace the current infrastructure and create new infrastructure, which is more friendly for a green economy. But the irony is that you need a lot of the commodities to build that. So I think it's that contradiction which people quite haven't been able to grapple with and something that we're seeing now, that the prices are really soaring for commodities some of this obviously has been affected by the recent events in Russia and Ukraine. But even before that, the price of commodities was doing very well. As you know, that last year was the best year for commodity returns uh, since, I think, 1973. So I think that something has shifted and it takes a while for new investment to come. So commodity cycles always end because you have enough new investment that comes in, new supply that comes in, the higher the prices, the more the incentive to invest. But I still feel that we're in the very early stages of that. Uh, and the green politics is complicating uh, matters, that you still feel that, you know, like you still find that given where prices are, the amount of new investment that's happening, whether it's in oil or another thing, compared to the past is less. We are seeing some new investment, but it's less than in the past because of the uh, fears of being on the wrong side of the, of the green politics we have out there. So, that, for me, is the fundamental bull case for commodities. Now, usually, if you look back, 
when commodities do well, those decades don't end up being great for technology stocks. Uh, or, you know, like the 1970s was an example. 2000s was an example. And I think that that, you know, like tends to happen because often what we see is that the tech cycle also becomes overextended and it needs time for digestion that you have lots of new ideas which are out there like you had in 2000. Eventually, all those ideas were uh, good, uh, but we were a bit ahead of ourselves. And I feel that we could be there uh, just now. There's a lot of talk of the metaverse and uh, those things are a bit ahead. Uh, and the pandemic also uh, accelerated a lot of new investment in technology. And so I think the rates of investment are rather high in the tech sector, and it'll take a while for this to be digested. So therefore, my overall thesis is that for this decade, long commodities, short technology is the best pay trade. Yeah, there's a lots of follow-ups. So I'm going to have to contain myself and how many questions I go on this thread. But uh, the, a very interesting stat in the paper uh, or on the Financial Times, a little bit under $3 trillion in unprofitable companies, 85% from the tech. So that goes to your point. This People are running out of steam for these uh, unprofitable tech ideas, potentially. I, I, I want to probe on two areas on, on what caused the lack of investment in commodities. Because, I mean, you're seeing headlines this week of are these – oil and gas companies doing too many buybacks and not investing in production. Uh, and so you got the politics angle that's that's constraining sentiment to some extent. And then I want to follow up on the ESG angles. But let, let's start with just the politics, like the, the U.S. politicians saying these companies shouldn't be doing buybacks. Do you expect more of that? How do you think the companies are going to respond to that type of feedback from the politicians? Yeah, I, I mean, as I said, the politicians just need to figure out the fact that, okay, you know, you know what gets priced, you know, like I agree that, but then they have to create an investment environment which is a bit more friendly for uh, these companies rather than, you know, like to make it so difficult to put new investments uh, out there. So I think the politicians need to figure out that how do you get from point A to point B without causing too much disruption in the global economy? Uh, I think that's, you know, not understood. Yeah, we all want to green a uh, 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 planet. Uh, you know, we all agree on that. But how do we get from point A to point B? I think that's something which has not been sufficiently understood. And so I think that the politics needs to take that into account, that there needs to be an interim step uh, before we make it so difficult for these companies to invest. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking to Sheer Sharma, who is now the chairman of Rockefeller International and recently joined Rockefeller Capital Management. Uh, it, it, Rockefeller, Rashir, has a big history, long history, is noted one of the ESG investors. So uh, when you talk to Greg about the ESG investing, is do you how do you think um, those type of investors play a role in this commodity? You, you called it greenflation in one of your pieces that because of this ESG trend, it's, it's putting capital. Do you think there's a movement to do uh, green-oriented investments in this commodity sector? Yeah, I think so. I think that movement is there. And I think the key is to engage with companies, right, rather than just sort of not do that. Uh, I think that the key is to engage with companies to see what policies they're following, uh, you know, that they can follow the right policies, hopefully, uh, which, you know, leads to a more, you know, more uh, less uh, polluting industries because these are, you know, quite polluting industries. So I think the key is to engage with these companies, uh, not to treat them as pariahs, uh, but to engage with them to see as to how they can sort of do their bit uh, to get us to the eventual point of a greener planet. So, yeah, I think that ESG is a big focus at Rockefeller. Uh, there's a lot of uh, attention paid to that. And I think that we need to now figure out how to just get that uh, done in a more constructive way by engaging with some, you know, like some of these companies. I think as investors, that's what we need to do. Um, and when, so I, you know, I know from talking with a lot about the Rockefeller team, they think a lot about ESG improvers as a way that it's not just saying, oh, that you, we're going to exclude all energy companies. Like you should actually try to find about whose trend is going in different directions um, so that, that they're, you could differentiate within, within the energy complex as another concept that they're, they're talking a lot about. That's right. That's something which I think is very significant. When, when you go to, let, let's sort of step back to the broader emerging market thesis today, 
Um, it, a lot of the indexes have become very, when you just you think back to a decade ago and well, 15 years ago, when oil was having its last very big bull market, you got energy, a very big part of the traditional MSCI emerging markets index. I want to say you were close to a third between energy and commodities, material sectors. Now they're well lower than half of that. It's all been tech and China tech is to your point on tech dominating. Any sense on in in when you think about where the big emerging market indexes are, China as a key narrative, and we got news today. We got we got uh, Xi and 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 Biden talking about their role and and what's happening. Give us your your view on China as a anchor to many of these emerging market indexes. Yeah, so in fact, one of the recommendations that I've had, and uh, and when I invest my own money. Uh, I think that I want to be significantly underweight China still. I think that the opportunities in the other emerging markets uh, outside of China, I think that one of the underappreciated stories over the last few months is just how weak the Chinese economy is. Uh, and I think we can see that in the stress we're seeing in the property sector out there. If you look at the dollar bond market for Chinese bonds, uh, especially for the high yield market, we've seen a lot of stress out there. Uh, those bonds are trading at over 3,000 basis points wide. Uh, you know, that's a huge sort of spread blowout that we've seen in the Chinese property sector. I think that uh, the uh, um, there's some early signs of China's Japanification in a way uh, because of its demographics. Uh, this could be well be the first year that the Chinese population in aggregate declines. Uh, that's a huge uh, change. And you know that without good demographics, it's very hard to generate rapid economic growth. The uh, other point is the debt, that they took on so much debt uh, to try and sustain these high growth rates. And that's causing problems for them. Uh, and we see some signs of a debt trap leading to a liquidity trap in China, that, they, that the central bank and the authorities there have been stimulating quite a bit uh, over the last few months. And you find that, you, that credit growth and uh, generally lending and borrowing is just not picking up, right? So that's, that tells you that something is really wrong, rotten uh, with the financial system when you open up the monetary spigots and you still don't get enough of, uh, of growth uh, in the um, uh, lending and borrowing aggregates. So I think the Chinese economy is a lot weaker uh, than, the, than we think. I think that a lot of people are focused on the risk coming from China, but what's, uh, uh, I think in terms of the economic weakness is something which is not properly, I think, appreciated. Uh, I think that the other point that I'll make out there is that this has some important geopolitical implications, right? That if China's economy is not that strong, then I don't know how much they can support Russia or how much they want to destabilize their economy at the cost of supporting Russia. Uh, they have seen that how uh, Russian listings just got canceled, literally, uh, in the uh, Western financial markets, and they don't want to face any uh, such consequence because they're even more entrenched in the Western financial system. So I think that this is a point that we need to think about, that one, that the Chinese economy is a lot weaker than it uh, has been covered in the press with so much attention on Russia, Ukraine, and uh, those kind of uh, factors. But that weakness also brings with it some consequences, including the fact that China's role in this uh, entire Russia uh, 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 crisis uh, may be curtailed a, a bit by its problems at home. And also, that may also put some upward uh, cap on inflation, right? That inflation is going up, but the Chinese economy is quite weak. Uh, that's a bit of a disinflationary impulse coming from somewhere when the world is facing such an inflation problem. So I think that those are a couple of important consequences. But otherwise, from an investing standpoint, I continue to be significantly underweight China. It's, it's interesting. I mean, so they, for, if you go back a year ago, I mean, their, their tech companies were, do, you know, were, were the stars of the show, Alibaba, Tencent, the big tech were sort of really strong performers. Now, a lot of them are down two thirds, 70% or more for some of the smaller ones. 
Um, and now what's interesting, this week we've had a lot of volatility uh, and they were sort of falling 7 10% a day, a lot of these big companies. And then the it seemed like the authorities had enough and they made all these statements from uh, – the question is like what, what did they actually try to do there? But they made a bunch of statements and you saw one China tech ETF go up 40% this week. You saw sort of rebound in a lot of the big names. And it, you know, some of the headlines were saying, well, the the regulation is sort of closer to the end than the beginning, or they 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 don't want to keep. Uh, it felt like the, the, maybe they were putting these companies on a path to zero, and now the market said, oh, maybe they're not going to go to zero. Um, have they become value stocks to you in in some of the big China tech companies, just given how much they're down and uh, and how pessimistic people have become? Yeah, I, like you know, but I think that there is some value emerging out there. But I'm not sure the Chinese regulatory crackdown is completely over. It may be over in terms of uh, like in a very aggressive way. But I think there's a big mind shift shift which has happened in China uh, and the Chinese leadership that they are now treating these companies as almost state-owned enterprises, uh, and it's very hard to value something which becomes close to a state-owned enterprise. Uh, that's what we saw like a decade ago, that some of the Chinese banks always appeared cheap. Uh, but you don't know, you know what the risks were uh, because they were not valuing the bad loans properly. Uh, their NPLs were a lot ha- uh, higher than what they were uh, recognizing. So that's the problem with some of these Chinese companies today, that, uh, that the, we just don't know how badly profits are going to be hit, especially with the notion in the Chinese leadership that these abnormal profits that these companies made over the last 10, 15 years uh, is not something that they're willing to tolerate. So, yeah, they may, the crackdown and its intensity may be easing just because they're seeing the negative consequences of all of this for the economy. Uh, but I think that the idea that, that, that this is just value now, because I think the earnings uh, haven't been marked down significantly, uh, because the whole Chinese enterprise today feels like one big state-owned enterprise. Uh, and that's a big change from what we saw over the past, I'd say, 30, 40 years in general, when the, you know, the Chinese economy was booming on the back of the private sector with the government in retreat. Uh, that's really been the story in China. Everyone thinks of China as a very big, powerful government pushing the economy ahead. I think it's a bit different, which is that, yeah, you have a very powerful, centralized leadership, but the economy has done well because the state has been in retreat and the private sector has been um, allowed to boom with some uh, occasional checks and balances, but it's been allowed to boom. So until 2020, what we had in China was unbridled capitalism in a way. Uh, you know, the number of new billionaires traded in China in 2020 was greater than the United States, uh, something that had never happened before. Uh, so I think that that is the big change which has taken place, uh, that that mindset that you can just make money in China uh, on the back of uh, the tech sector and the penetration levels, I think the government there is saying, no, no, uh, abnormal profits are not going to be allowed in China. How does, so one of the worries could be, and your point is that their economy is so much weaker. Um, there's a lot of people who, there's, on the political side say they could use this opportunity to follow Russia and go go to Taiwan. Your point is they, they may not, they have so many issues. Taiwan may, this is some of the other things I'm hearing that people don't think they can go and take Taiwan, um, partly for a lot of different reasons, but related to your point as well. Um, but that they're not going to get involved with Russia on that is, is do you see the Russia dynamics? I mean, you're, you're hearing comments on India needing to buy their oil. Like, how do you what else do you see from the Russia war as having spillover effects across the rest of emerging markets? Yeah, I think that uh, firstly, I'll make the point that emerging markets in general have held up better than you would have expected, given this crisis, because. You know, the S&P is down, whatever, 10, 12 percent, depending when you look at it. But I'd say and emerging markets are down by a similar magnitude. Uh, but if you look at emerging markets outside of China, many of them are up, in fact, for the year in dollar terms. The Brazils, the Indonesias. So I think that the commodity super cycle that we are in is generally helpful for emerging markets. Uh, and the overall index is skewed because China's weight is so large in that index. And some of the commodity exporting countries' weight is very small. I mean, Brazil at one point in time used to be, I don't know, 25, 30% of the index. Now it's, uh, you know, barely 5%. Uh, 
Similarly, in countries like Indonesia, a pretty serious economy uh, in Southeast Asia, its weight is you know barely one odd percent. So I think that the that the index composition of emerging markets today is extremely skewed, and I think that that's something which uh, could change over time. Uh, but I'd say for emerging markets, you know, like many of the countries, especially the commodity exporting countries, I feel the opportunity is there to outperform significantly over the next few years. Yeah, that comes back to like the the, the cap weighted index construct where these tech companies became very, very large, became very, very big weights. Um, now, value indexes, if you look at some of the high dividend or value strategies, they could be 20% Brazil, but it goes to how it's very different when you have a factor or, or not just going to market cap and buying the whole market that Brazil, it, it certainly had a very large thing. Now, Russia was a large weight in a lot of those same indexes, and, and now they're being valued at zero because the, the markets aren't trading. Do, do you think Russia now, I mean, all the index providers have said um, MSCI, FTSE, S&P have removed Russia. Is now Russia no longer investable ever again? I mean, what's, what's your view on, on how people will eventually treat Russia over time? Well, I, I would never use the words ever again uh, because I've lived through the Russian default crisis of 98 as well. Um, yeah, currently Russia is uninvestable. Uh, uh, like everything has been marked to zero and it's uninvestable. Now, you know there is uh, some asset value in these companies. You know, like till the other day, these were really large, giant companies, uh, the Gazproms, the Spurbanks, uh, Luke Oil, you name it, right? So you had some really power, powerful Russian companies out there in this value. So yeah, as long as the financial sanctions continue, uh, Russia is uninvestable, but that could change uh, if something happens in Russia. So it's, a, it's one of those binary events, which is that there's underlying value, but it's uninvestable. But if something were to happen by any chance that there's a regime change in Russia or uh, and the sanctions were to go away, all of a sudden these things go back to being valued uh, because they have a lot of uh, significant assets. So, yeah, for now, it's unvestable. Even if you want to buy it, uh, sitting here in the U.S., you can't do it. Uh, but if you by any chance happen to have it uh, in your portfolio and are uh, you know, really upset that it's gone down to zero, hang on, hang in there, uh, because you never know if this changes uh, what could happen. Uh, so I think that it's a free call option in a way. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who has to make these decisions for indexes, I think about it exactly as you're saying. And um, now the pre- the question is, do you get pressure from different regulatory bodies that you have to do something? Um, and and you've made you, these other index providers have made statements. I mean, MSCI, S and P, FTSE, all of them have made statements that we're removing Russia. And I feel like you, like that, you're marking them down to zero. Um, what's the point at this point? Now you could say I want to make a political statement and condemn. What's Russia doing? And then obviously in no way am I supporting what's Russia doing by saying I haven't kicked it out of an index. But is do you have a sense on on do you have a prediction on how this Russia dynamic plays out? Like the you mentioned regime change or some decreased pressure on sanctions. If, if you were betting for a year from now, where, where do you think we are in this dynamic? You know, it's really hard to handicap this probability because I think that it's very clear that until Putin's fighting this war, there's going to be no uh, relenting on what's already been done, uh, which is these, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, strict uh, sanctions on the Russian financial system. So I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. So it's a it's a bit like being in the first or two, you know, second month of the pandemic. We, you know, we were we did not know how long this is going to last, what are going to be the various scenarios. People were struggling to look at uh, historical examples and trying to force fit them uh, to make a prediction of the future. These are events that you don't know. Like, you know, we can talk about the Fed. We can talk about, okay, this happened with the Fed in the past tightening cycles. What what can we learn from that? And we can try and apply that uh, to our um, investing world. But when you get an event like this, which is so unanalyzable, uh, like the pandemic in its first month or two, like this Russian crisis just now, where everyone is trying to figure out what's in Putin's mind. We don't even know what's happening on the ground properly, uh, uh, like in Russia. You get these reports that the war is quite popular among the rural people in Russia. 
you know, so uh, that nationalist sentiment has been whipped up there. It's so hard to know that. So therefore, it's very hard to base any prediction based on these kind of things. I mean, predicting the future is difficult anyway, uh, but we do it. Uh, and But I think that the probability of getting it right uh, is uh, really very low when it has to do with these non-economic factors. We've got Rushir Sharma with us for the hour. We're talking about his view on the decade for commodities, the decade for emerging markets. Rushir, we talked a bit about China, Russia at the start of the show. Uh, If you were to say, uh, as part of this thesis on commodities, it sounds like Brazil would be in your sort of favored nations going forward. But do you have a, a top list of countries you find the most interesting as part of this rotation to emerging markets over the coming decades? Yeah, I think Latin America in general looks good. Obviously, Brazil is the biggest market in there. But uh, I think that even the, you know, that we're looking for opportunities right across Latin America, the Chiles, the Perus uh, of the world as well. I think that you have some companies in South Africa also, which are looking very attractive in this sort of dynamic. Indonesia is the other place, uh, you know, where I think that uh, that the fundamentals are looking pretty good. Uh, so I think some of these places are there and, uh, you know, in terms of which could benefit from the commodity cycle uh, turning higher. So, yeah, it's Latin America, Africa, with South Africa being the home to some of those companies uh, and, uh, you know, countries like Indonesia. I think that these could be the beneficiaries uh, of the commodity super cycle. When, I think clearly we've been well made aware of the political risk in all of these things, right? We see it with China. We see it with, with what's going on in Russia. As you think about any of those countries, like let's Brazil as an example, is there a political risk premium that you're thinking about evaluating? Or how do you evaluate anything that's going on that would, would make people a little bit sort of more trepid about going over to, to these countries? Yeah, so I think that the political risk premium is there. And I think that's why they have not done as well as, so if you look at it, uh, the history of emerging markets, there's a very close correlation between commodity prices and the performance of emerging markets. But over the past year, that link entirely broke down, that you had commodities which did uh, 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 well, but some of these emerging markets just didn't do well. In fact, the gap between emerging market performance and commodities today is the widest it's been uh, in almost history. I think that the only time got close to this was 2001 or so. So it's a big gap we have seen between emerging markets and uh, commodity mar- uh, uh, markets uh, performance. And I think that gap is partly because of this political risk premium, that in places like Brazil, you have an election later this year, people are very concerned about who will come. Uh, Lula is in the lead. He has historically sort of been a left uh, of uh, the the center kind of candidate, markets prefer right of center kind of candidate. Uh, so I think that those kind of risks are there. My point is that there's too much of this risk priced in there uh, in some of these markets. And so therefore, the gap between commodity prices and where these markets are is still quite wide. Uh, so I think that the political risk is there, will always be there, but it's possibly overpriced in some of these countries. Um, are, are there other themes as you think about beyond so the short tech trade, uh, sort of that which is mostly short U.S. trade, I, I, I presume? But are there other themes beyond commodities of 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 how you think about positioning within either the broad markets, the U.S. or or emerging markets that you're sort of most interested in? Yeah, in terms of um, you know, like there are many like other themes also within emerging markets, right? I think that there is the manufacturing theme where countries like Vietnam, et cetera, are benefiting. I think there are countries like India, where, you know, you know which have got a whole host of very good companies uh, listed out there. I think that, like, Eastern Europe, I find interesting that uh, some of the best economic success stories over the last few decades have come out of Eastern Europe. Now, they are under the cloud just now because of the fallout from the Russia-Ukraine uh, war. Uh, but that's where you could end up getting collateral damage uh, in terms of that some of these uh, countries and companies get hurt for no reason. So I think that that's the important bit out there, which is that how do we end up benefiting um, from exploiting these opportunities when things are happening? So I'd say that some of these other countries and themes in emerging markets 
is what uh, I'm focused on. Now, I mean, as a timely item, we had the Fed, which is starting the rate hiking cycle, uh, which the question is, does that have implications? Do you have a view on on what you heard from the Fed? Uh, you have Bullard hitting the headlines today. He was on our show a few weeks ago, uh, and he's saying that they got they should be at three percent by the end of the year. He's the most aggressive besides Professor Siegel that I know. Um, but um, what, what how do you see the Fed impacting this emerging market thesis? Right. So I think that the Fed's uh, tightening cycle is generally not good for equity markets around the world because, you know, the Fed is the central bank of the world. It's in tightening mode. Uh, and that is generally not good. Having said that, you know, I think that what matters here is that uh, who gets hurt more. And I find that it's the fact that, that because so few people are left in these emerging markets, so much foreign capital, particularly from the stock markets, has already fled. I feel that the positioning is quite light. So historically, Fed tightening cycles didn't do uh, much for emerging markets in terms of like, did it more damage than good. But that's also because people were had a lot of exposure to emerging markets. This time, we go in a cycle with very little exposure to emerging markets. Hmm. So I feel that the consequences are not that negative. Instead, where are people overinvested? Again, in technology, in, in the U.S. So I think that, therefore, these... Uh, stock sectors and country underperform uh, this time in a Fed tightening cycle. So it's all about that, yeah, when the liquidity is being withdrawn, um, it's not good for markets. Issue, though, is that who's more exposed this time? Uh, so when the Fed was tightening last time, um, I'd say some of these emerging markets were much more exposed uh, because that's where a lot of capital had gone. But this time, a lot of the capital has not gone to emerging markets. It's, it's, it's come to tech stocks. It's come to the U.S. And I think that that could be more exposed as the tide runs out. Now, the the other thing with rates rising, the questions on debt levels become an issue. And you've been writing a little bit about government debt and how much debt is around the world. Uh, do you want to give your overall big picture view on the global debt trap, as, as you called it, and, and how that's going to play out over the coming decade? Yeah, you know, like the issue here is this, which is that today the level of debt in the global economy uh, is, is significantly higher than it used to be, right? I mean, the uh, level of debt in the global economy is over 300% of GDP. Uh, like, tw- you know, like 30 years ago or something, that number was more in line, that the debt level and the uh, economic uh, size were similar uh, at about 100% of GDP. So when you have such significantly high debt levels, it means that changes in interest rates become a bigger issue uh, because any change in interest rates now has a much greater impact on the debt servicing. So that's why my belief is the fact that the ability of the Fed to raise rates is more constrained by uh, by this, that if the Fed raises rates by four, five, six times, you'll begin to see negative consequences much more quickly because the debt levels are so much higher this time. So that's what I call the debt trap. Uh, and the other like implication of this is that the size of the financial markets today is so much larger than it used to be. And a lot of the uh, financial markets are very sensitive to interest rate changes. So I think that that is the important point here, which is that uh, it is it is um, the sensitivity to interest rates of the global economy today is much higher given the very high levels of debt and also much higher in terms of um, the uh, size of financial markets. So that's what I say that the ability of central banks, including the Fed, to raise rates is much more limited in today's scenario. So the the dot plot, you know, so the the Fed was way behind the curve. The dot plot went from only forecasting three hikes to now the dot plot came to around a little bit more to Siegel's view. He was saying even before anybody expected any hikes that he was saying they need to get to 2% by the end of the year. Uh, do you is your call that they can't get to two percent now that that's their their median projection? Do you think your is your call when I'm I'm listening to more like four hikes and 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 maybe that's the most they can get? Well, maybe uh, four is a lot less, but even with these seven hikes they're talking about uh, or eight hikes, the neutral rate is still much lower than it used to be. Yes. Uh, you know, we will still and. And rates are still negative. So I think that we could get the dot plot play out. But, you know, like my point is the fact that 
it's already telling you that it's a lot less uh, than it would be and that the curve is much more, uh, closer to inverting now than it's ever been in the past at this stage of the cycle. Usually at this stage of the cycle, there's plenty of uh, curve flattening left. Uh, but the fact is that the curve is very close to uh, like almost inverting and there are some, you know, the longer uh, end of the curve, the 7s, 10s, etc., we've already seen some inversion take place out there. So I say that this is a real issue. This is already telling you that we are in a bit of a dead trap. Uh, so, yeah, I think that the risk at this stage is that the tightening is a bit shallower than what the market thinks. Uh, but uh, I'm not prepared to make the call as yet. But I think that the evidence is already there that the amount of tightening that the Fed can do and get away with is a lot less now compared to what it was in the past. That's what the market's already telling you. Uh, especially with the 10-year refusing uh, like, uh, to go up uh, that much. It's gone up some, but, you know, it's still, it's still, the, uh, it's still not that much higher than the, than the two-year. Uh, but historically, at this stage of the tightening cycle, after the, just the first hike, you expect the gap to be a lot, lot larger than it is today. We're talking with Rushir Sharma, who's the chairman of Rockefeller International. Uh, Rushir, when you think about the the country that's probably been the furthest in this debt trap has been Japan. You got the Bank of Japan, who's basically bought every Japanese bond that exists. And, you know, the yen now, the yen has started weakening um, this year and, and, and maybe surprised a lot of people down to like 119 yen to the dollar. I mean, from 105 not so long ago. Um, are you surprised on or by anything that's been happening in Japan? People look at them as early in the most debt to GDP, but also doing buying the most bonds from the central bank and the currency. Yes, it's weakened, but I mean it's still not that weak from where it was uh, even you know earlier in the Abenomics period when it got down to one twenty, one twenty five yen. Are you surprised at all by what's been happening there? Yeah, I think that the yen's weakness has been a bit. Uh greater than I would have expected. So I think that's something we need to sort of figure out what really is going on out there. But um, I'd say that that is uh, something which, you know, we need to keep an eye on because it's a bit unusual uh, to see that kind of weakness take place at this stage of the cycle. Uh, uh, And also at a time when there's so much risk aversion out there. So I'd say that the fact that, you know, that that's happening in like Japan is something we need to, you know, like is definitely noteworthy. There's always a question, like, why is Japan the safe haven currency that does well during times of stress? Well, because they were sh- people were shorting the yen, they were borrowing there, but now you can borrow everywhere at sort of zero or negative rates, and so it's, no, it's losing that safe haven property. Yeah, that's correct, and also the fact that uh, if you, uh, you know, like, the policy mix in Japan has also changed now. It's not, it's not what it used to be. So, yeah, I'd say that that is the... Uh, that is the point there. But I think that's a bit of a global problem that, you know, apart from the dollar, just no currency ever seems to emerge uh, as an alternative to the U.S. dollar. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, crypto came on the scene. Uh, But unfortunately, even crypto has not been able to provide much protection in this this, uh, downturn that we have seen. But I think the real issue is the fact that no currency seems to be able to match the dollar's strength. the dollar's dominance. And that, I think, is a bigger issue. We, we haven't talked a lot about India, which is one of your, your uh, favorite countries to talk about. Um, what's your big thesis? I mean, that they were sort of hurt during when, when oil was spiking before as part of the Fragile Five. Uh, now, you know, again, they're sort of, they could be caught up in some of the politics with Russia still wanting to import some of the oil. What's your sense of what's happening sort of short term and then sort of zoom out to the longer term on, on the thesis for India? Yeah, so I think that the whole fragile five stuff from a decade ago has changed dramatically. The current account deficits in these countries are very different uh, compared to what they were like a decade ago, whether it's India, Brazil. So I think that, you know, like the um, external position is a lot more sound than it was when the fragile five happened. I think that the most important thing as far as India is concerned is the fact that there's still so much catch up there, right? That, you know, that the fact that it's per capita income is still, uh, you know, like barely $3,000 and it's not even there as yet. So it just has ample scope to catch up. Uh, and I think that, uh, therefore, domestic demand in India keeps slipping away. Uh, uh, the line about India I've always used is, is that this is the country that consistently disappoints the optimists and the pessimists. 
Uh, and I think that that's something which I still believe in. Uh, but I think that, you know, there's ample scope for India to uh, keep catching up. So apart from the oil price uh, curveball out there, uh, you know, which India is a big importer of oil, and uh, obviously it's caught in a bit of a tight spot just now, I think that India looks uh, fine to me uh, in terms of the fact there's ample scope for uh, catch-up potential in India. And the equity market there has been very supported by domestic investors that even as the foreigners have been selling in size, the domestic investors have been buying. And generally, I find that domestic investors have a better track record of predicting a market than the foreign investors do. The foreign investors tend to often be the last to the party and uh, uh, you know, also the last to leave. Uh, so I'd say that uh, uh, the fact that domestic investors in places like India have been offsetting some of this very heavy foreign selling is a positive divergence. That seems sounds like the macro tourist hedge fund community are giving a, a hard time and, and it's sort of the retail investor in the local markets that are that are holding it up. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Is there anything from retail going trading last year in and during the pandemic uh, in the US that tells a different story or is it uh, what, what makes the these local markets better than maybe re, you know the the is, i don't know if, the, if you have a different view on the u.s retail versus institutions and yeah and, i think mean, i mean the two different points like in india it's not just the retail yeah i mean there's some institutional participation but yeah but otherwise if you look, if you look at the u.s market and generally in markets that typically retail participation happens towards the end of a bull market right in terms of the fact that the retail investor comes much later uh to the party. That's the historical experience. We saw that even in the U.S. Uh, that uh, that happened. So I wrote a cautionary article about that uh, in the FT, in fact, last December, saying that uh, that it's a bit troubling to me that the retail investors are, you know, have gone into this manic buying stage just when a lot of insiders are selling in a big way. Uh, you know, the corporate insiders, the management. So that was a warning sign to me that if you get that mix in the, in the market where the insiders are selling, but the retail investors over enthusiastic about something, uh, that's problematic. And the retail investors were buying stuff like either they were buying the uh, standard big tech names or they were trying to punt in some of these low value names in which they can take more leverage uh, and and buy more heavily. So I'd say that the retail invest uh, that that is a bit of a warning sign in terms of what's going on. So there are two different dynamics here. One, I'm talking about domestic investors in general versus foreign investors. And the second dynamic within a market is retailers versus insiders. So the track record seems to suggest that generally when retail investors get too excited about a market, you have to be a bit cautious because that tends to be at towards the end of a bull market. Uh, professional investors also get trends wrong. But the probability that retail investors get it wrong is higher than professional investors. That's what the history uh, shows. The other sort of implication for emerging markets is that if you get a contradiction between what domestic investors are doing and foreign investors are doing, it's typically the domestic investors who have a better track record uh, of sensing what's going on compared to foreign investors. Uh, I've seen it so often that in countries like Turkey, it's... uh, uh, in the last few years, or before that, even the East Asian financial crisis, the domestic investors were the first ones to leave the country before the crisis hit. Uh, the foreign investors left much later. And similarly, when the turnaround started to happen, the domestic investors are the first ones to come. The hedge funds and the foreign investors follow later. And it's particularly the, the, the high net worth uh, millionaires in these countries which give you a better indication about uh, what the local sentiment is. I want to give you a chance to, well, at least uh, give us a preview. When you think about where is breakout capital going to spend some time and energy, we've talked a little bit about the types of countries and things you're thinking about. As you think about beyond, well, maybe how do you think about the types of strategies you want breakout capital to deliver? Is it mostly going to be equities? You can go cross asset from bonds and and other uh, things. Like, Give us a preview of what you think breakout capital will focus on. Well, I think this is a bit early uh, because, you know, we are still in the process of rolling this out. But my general expertise is in emerging markets. And so emerging markets is what I'm going to focus on uh, uh, in terms of uh, from an investing perspective. And also because I, even though I'm a global investor, I believe the coming decade, as I said at the top of your show, is likely to be good for emerging markets. 
So it's a bit early for me to sort of, you know, give much details out because that's in the early stages of uh, it being formed. But I'd say that the uh, uh, focus is going to be more towards emerging markets. It'll be interesting to see, you know, with bond rates low, do we do emerging market bonds? Do you go for the commodity trade and ensure the short tech trade? Do some long short strategy? Very interesting to watch what you guys uh, end up doing. Any any sort of final, we've had a great broad macro conversation. Uh, as you think about other things that you'd want people to focus on or, or any final closing thoughts from your your vantage point, what, what you'd be pointing people to? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's easy to get too pessimistic because, you think, you know, because of the way things are. Uh, but my point is, you know, there's always opportunity somewhere. Uh, and I think that for the coming few years, the U.S. investor has to think about uh, getting much more globally diversified uh, because that strategy hasn't worked over the last decade. So people are comfortably numb uh, by having a very significant geographical bias towards being at home. But I think that that is something which could uh, change in the coming few years. So I think that it's time to look much more internationally. Uh, And just remember one key statistic here, that the U.S. today is 25% of the global economy, but 62% of the global market uh, cap. And that gap is way too large. Emerging markets are at the other end of it. 36% of the global economy, but only 11% of global market cap. So look for those gaps to close. And uh, if anything, it's it's overweight China tech and underweight this commodity sector that has been in a brutal bear market for a decade, and, and it's just starting to been turning around. So I think your big picture perspective has been really great, Rushira. Thank you so much for spending the full hour with us here on Behind the Markets. Enjoyed that. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. We talked with Rashir Sharma, who is the chairman of Rockefeller Capital Management. Uh, I am Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Uh, it was a great discussion with Rashir on emerging markets. I think it was a, a very, a very good big picture perspective. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.